Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest, uh, you may have recognized him. He was on a podcast before, Paul Gilmartin, who is the host of Mental Illness Happy Hour, which I was also uh, happy to be a, a part of. Um, and we talked about all the things from how, you know, our medications can cause side effects how to cope with life instead of numbing ourselves, surrendering to what is. We also talked about what the opposite of depression is. And I credit Paul for introducing me to a book, Silently Seduced, which really opened my eyes as to the covert and overt ways that um, as children, we can be seduced by our parents and in um in a non-physical way, but more in an emotional way. But uh, Paul, I'm glad to have you back on. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Leo. It's good to it's good to be back. And uh, I like to start off in in a space that's not so much directly uh, related to mental health. But um, last time we talked, you were into woodworking, and you mentioned how it's really about the number of hobbies that we have that um, they've shown dictate the part of the quality of our life, like our, our ability to keep ourselves occupied. So my question is, this has been years. Are you still woodworking and, and what are you working on? How are you keeping those hands busy? It, it's, it, it's interesting that you ask me that because I've gotten away from it for, for a while. And my woodworking has, has kind of gotten, I used to woodwork alone and the passion was there for it but it's gotten to the point now where if somebody isn't joining me to woodwork be it me uh, teaching them how to woodwork or somebody who already knows what they're doing um i don't really get in the shop and then that affects my mental health because i feel like you lazy motherfucker you've got all these tools in your garage that people would kill for and you're not going out there. And uh, it, it it's one of the biggest battles that I have in my head is I should be doing this, but I don't feel the vitality um, to do it. The passion isn't there. It feels like I might as well be, you know, painting a room. That's how exciting it feels. And I'm sure it's related to depression or anxiety or, you know, something unrelated to to woodworking but the it's interesting how our attitude about something that we think we should be doing or not doing um how that can kind of inflame our our mental struggles um and i was talking to my girlfriend about it this weekend and i said sometimes i get i wouldn't call it suicidal but i experience suicidal ideation as like a relief valve like well if this never gets better um there's there's always that option and i'm far away from you know making a plan but i do sometimes fantasize that well you know if i do feel this flat for the rest of my life and everything feels like an effort um you know i can always check check out and it's a really hard thing, and I know you know this, it's a really hard thing to decide whether or not to share with someone because we don't want them to worry needlessly about us 
But I think we also, there's a part of us that needs to not keep this hidden away. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it, it's a very fine line because I don't know what your experiences are, but, you know, from our last episode and the fact that you do have a podcast about mental health, I would assume historically there have been times where we've opened up and we've shared with people and it only led to more pain, more hurt, more suffering because the person that we opened up to was either dismissive or used it to attack us or weaponize it against us at some future point, or they just didn't understand. And, and, and that hurts. And that bothers the, the, the just not being able to relate and, and then feeling like, am I alone in this? You know, because am I a burden? Because you, Ideally, you probably are opening up to someone who has known you for a while, who you feels like should understand you because they're your best friend or they're a relative or a family member. And so you think, well, anything I share with them, they can, they at least would understand. They Not that they've gone through it. And so when you have that moment where, wow, the person closest to me can't understand, then, then your brain goes, well, who else could? Who mm-hmm. else can't? Why I should I open up? Secret, right? Yeah. So yeah, what do you? What my do you... girlfriend was very, very empathetic and understanding, and it, you know, I think the onus on us is to also make it very clear um, that these, if this is the truth, that these are just thoughts, that they are a a, a way of soothing ourselves, not making a plan, because there's a huge difference between a fleeting thought of, well, there's always this exit door if things never get better. Um, There's a big difference between that and I'm really close to, you know, doing such and such. And I promised her, I said, if I ever get to the point where I feel like I'm making a plan or I'm in danger of doing that, I promise you I will check myself in to a psych ward. I promise. I promise you that. I don't believe that there's any, um, that that is a real possibility. It's just, you know, when, when depression is just hanging around and it's just affecting so many things. And there are things in my life it doesn't affect. I still love playing hockey. I still love You know, my girlfriend comes over on the weekend and we spend time together. I love my support groups. Um, There are just times that when when we it's robbing a lot of the color out of our life and it's turning a lot of things gray um, that we feel like, I don't know, part of us is kind of a ghost just going through the motions and. You know, for me, there's a predominant feeling of dread and being overwhelmed. There's a lot of afternoons when I get up at noon, which is its own kind of shame, uh, even though I go to bed at five, um, between three and five. Um, but there is a lot of uh, dread around 
just doing the things that that we have to do on a on a daily basis and and that dread just it gets really tiring um where everything feels like you're going to you know an exercise boot camp you know just to gr- go to the grocery store is like has all this vague dread around it uh i don't know do you relate to that yeah it, it feels you know <laughs> I relate to it to the point where there was, I think I went a week without showering. And did you get a trophy at the end? <laughs> I wish. I think if you really I, actually, buckle down, Leo, you can get that to two weeks. I actually, you know, I'm, I'm glad I, I wasn't rewarded for that because then I probably would have never showered. And, um, and, and I think that's kind of, that's the benefit of having a girlfriend is it kind of keeps the hygiene in check <laughs> because. <laughs> I could definitely, um, you know, go a while. I probably, you know, especially as I'm getting older and I feel a bit more uh, like a recluse, I I definitely could go longer. Um, But I promised myself, I went through a week where, you know, I didn't shower and I go, you know, I'm going to get up and at least take a shower every morning. You know, because I, I didn't realize that's how bad my depression could be, where mm-hmm. I'm like not even and I'm and I'm going to work, mind you. I was I was like teaching classes and, you know, out in the world. And um, but, you know, Were you brushing your teeth? Um, probably so, because you could I that feeling is too disgusting for me. Yeah. The, the, the cakiness in the, in the mouth. And and plus I had like a, a real. I remember when I was a kid, I went to the dentist's office and he had uh, a photo of your teeth and it was three stages. The first was the healthy stage. The second was gingivitis and it was already looking um, a little bloody. And then the third stage was, uh, I forget what it is, but only the first stage looked good. The next two were terrifying. And so I just remember thinking to myself, I'm going to brush and floss every day and and since because I, I as a kid i would i would skip brushing and flossing but because i saw that visual image uh that's one thing i, I can't let go but going back to the the depression yeah of of things feeling heavy y- you mentioned earlier paul about your your girlfriend understanding you when you shared your thoughts and ideas can you share for us what that sounded like because I think that some people want their their significant other to understand, and they don't know how to communicate to them what they need that to sound like. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question, and it would be it, what felt like her understanding to me was she didn't try to change me. She didn't try to say, well, look at all these positive things in your life. She just took it in and said, I'm I'm here for you. I'm so sorry that you're feeling that way. What can I do? And I think you can never go wrong with, with that. I mean, if the person is in imminent danger, uh, then I, th- I think it's incumbent upon them to to say i i'm sorry but i'm i i need to call to have you go somewhere where you will be 
safe. Uh, and as much as uh, the person who's suffering may resent them or be angry, um, I think ultimately in the long run, I, I think it's just that that person's duty. But again, that's you know one of the things that they tell therapists and teachers and other people is um, the involuntary hold that that somebody would be placed under is if they are in danger of harming themselves and, and or others, and that it it's an imminent threat. It's not a fleeting thought. It's there's a plan, and I'm moving closer to this. So um, I, I made it very clear to her that this was just a part of myself. And it's really, it was really the depression more than the suicidal ideation that I wanted her to know about. Um, because isn't that part of intimacy that, you know, sharing um, the the parts of us that, that we don't want to share and not to have the other person do anything thing, but just so they can know what is going on. So that if we're being distant or we're saying, I know we made plans tonight, um, but I really don't want to go, you know, if they have that information about us, uh, it helps them understand the context of why we don't want to leave the house that it's not, oh, I think your idea is shitty about going to see this movie or the restaurant you want to go to is a dumb idea. They understand that I am struggling uh, right now. So I think that's one of the reasons uh, that I chose to share that with her. Um, Yeah, does that make sense? How does that show up in your body? Like, what does that feel like? Yes. What is that, the, the depression? What does that feel like? Physically, where do you feel that the most? It's it's a kind of a uh, heaviness and a feeling of detachment, not in a good way of detachment, but like almost like I'm watching my life pass pass by before me, uh, and like I'm helpless. Like it's a train. Like if life were a train, it's going just a couple of miles an hour faster than I can run to hop up on it. Um, I intellectually know the things that I need to do. And most of the dread and the anxiety are around professional things that, that is, uh, you know, like catastrophize about my future finances. And I'm going through some stuff right now, financially, it's not in the future. It's, you know, it's, it's happening right now. I made the decision to walk away from a an income source of, uh, for the podcast for ethical reasons, and I and I feel very clear about that dis- decision. But it was um, over fifty percent of my income, so I'm going to have to find a way to make up for that. And so I'm taking that leap of faith um, because it's one of the things I learned in support groups and getting sober is that you know the path forward has to have a moral code to it if we are to feel peace. Um, My life becomes unmanageable when I begin to go against my moral code and take actions based on fear and future tripping. There there has to be a certain amount of faith. And I I don't know if you'd call that spirituality or or whatever, but um, so 
I'm, I'm kind of in limbo right now of uh, where's that income source going to come from? And being a catastrophizer and a worrier to begin with, you can imagine how much ammo that is for the negative part of my brain. That's like, we're never going to be able to retire. And, you know, you're going to have to sell your house and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, one of the other benefits of sharing with someone uh, is that we get to hear ourselves say, what we're thinking and feeling out loud. And oftentimes that will be the thing where we can kind of objectively go, well, that's a little extreme, you know, the black and white thinking. When we keep it to ourselves, the black and white thinking can often seem very reasonable and logical. But when we share, and usually if we hear ourselves sharing the words always and never, uh, that's usually, or everything or nothing, that's usually a sign that there's some catastrophizing going on. Yeah, those words are so romanticized in our culture, right? Really you know, are. every song, I, I will always love you forever. You're everything to me. I'll never leave you. You know, it's interesting that, you know, you talked about part of the dread that you were feeling was like never being able to catch up to the, the train. It was like almost like a fear of being left behind or abandoned. Um, who or what do you feel like would le be leaving you behind or what is that? My potential, train? my mm. potential, uh, because I do feel that I have untapped potential, but between me and it is, this wall of nothingness that is hard to describe, but it's like a void that my energy just gets sapped by. Um, it's a vague fear, a vague lack of energy, a vague uh, taking action to expand my life professionally or taking care of my health by going for a walk or any of those things feels like I'm standing on the edge of an ice cold pool. And I know the answer is to jump into that pool, but it feels like, oh, it's going to be insufferable. It's going to be so uncomfortable. And I would rather sit in this stinky, predictable womb that I know rather than seeing what happens when I, when I get out of it. And, and, you know, and a part of that is the real true lack of vitality that, that we experience. Yeah. Some of it is catastrophizing, but you know, depression saps your energy. It makes your brain foggy. Decision-making becomes difficult. It's easy to become overwhelmed. We want to pull away. We feel like we're a burden. Um, you know, we tell ourselves, we believe the mean things that we tell ourselves, which are often things that were told to us in childhood um, or that we developed as a coping mechanism to make sense of the chaos or the, you know, lack of safety around us that, ooh, I'm the cause of it. And if I were just more, if I were more interesting, if I worked harder, you know, then these people wouldn't be fighting or, you know, they wouldn't be sad or, you know, whatever, whatever the lie is that we tell ourselves. You know, as I am visualizing this image of you, you know, on the edge of the pool, 
wanting to jump in and the the sheer terror of it or the you know whatever is is holding you back there's something lonely about jumping into a pool alone mm-hmm. you know if i if i i think about being a kid what made going to the pool fun was not just that there was a pool but the the hope or the idea that there were other kids at the pool there were floaties there's music maybe somebody's grilling there's hot dogs games uh, there's there's games there's laughter people are pushing you in the pool you're dunking each other playing chicken there's an excitement and and i think that there's a and and i'm i'm partly projecting here because i I've, I've been thinking about this lately just with my life and my career of like i it's not that i am losing enthusiasm for what i'm doing is that i'm losing enthusiasm for doing it alone it just it's just not fun you know i i played college football i played sports i've always been drawn to the sports where there were team sports i was never drawn to tennis <laughs> or uh you know swimming it's like i want the high fives the attaboys i want that camaraderie the you know the we we are in this we are on a mission versus this i the i is cool briefly but uh there's a point where the i is not enough it's not it's not because there's no new energy coming in and yeah, independence and solitude are certainly important, but I feel like they got to be balanced with human connection and uh, a cause greater than ourselves, whether it's a support group around our struggles or doing volunteer work or just calling somebody else up who is struggling and asking them how they're doing. Those are all things that I I have to do. Uh, to keep this from becoming worse and the phone yeah. just feels so heavy when oh, we're depressed dude, it, it's like it's, you know a thousand pounds if it were on a barbell the barbell would bend when you pick up a phone on on either side of the barbell you, you know I'm somebody so, should do a cartoon yeah. of that two phones on either side of a barbell it just says depression I'm so jealous because we just moved out to, uh, I don't know, a suburb, but like we live up on this hill. It's nice. Mm -hmm. And in the morning, if I get up early enough, I I see these groups of women walking, you know, getting their steps in. And they are so chatty Cathy in the morning. But that's the energy that they have. Like I'm so jealous of that. Yeah they're walking with this vitality and this enthusiasm and this, you know, like we're not just exercising, we're connecting and bonding and they're just Mm -hmm. sharing. And I was like, I've never seen two guys walking with that same energy ever. It's always women. They, they have this. (laughs) I think men do that in other ways. I think watching sports together, I think playing sports together, um, yeah, I think men do do that, but I think men uh, classically are kind of less verbal, maybe than than women. And I don't think that's something that I'm that I'm making up. I believe there's uh, statistics that that show that, and obviously, you know, that's that's a generalization. But uh, yeah, man, I feel that. I feel that 
and I look at people who can laugh easily uh, and it's like, I feel like I'm from another planet because it takes a lot for me to laugh out loud. Uh, it takes a lot for me to cry. And I look at people who can cry and laugh easily and I feel that same kind of jealousy. Yeah, yeah I find that I laugh and cry or I just, just emote in general more when I'm with others. Mm-hmm. You know, if I Definitely watch laughter, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there's. I I thought I, I was. There was a period where I was in a camp of I'm never going back to the movies. You know, like during the the pandemic, I was like, I have a great big television. Mm-hmm. I have the surround sounds. Nobody's talking. Yeah, yeah, no one's talking. I don't have to look for parking. I'm not paying out the wazoo for a convenience fee. I don't know why convenience costs more. Like anyway, um. But then I go to the movies and I'm like, oh, this is why you go to the movies. Because the energy, if it's if it's one of those great movies, um, like uh Dunkirk or 1917, they were just movies where you could either hear the excitement from it, especially like a Marvel comic movie, like a new Batman, a new whatever. Or if it's something heavy like 19, I remember we saw 1917. It was so emotional. When it ended, no one got up. Mm-hmm. Usually when a movie ends, most of the people get up or, you know, start fi- like th- th- it was so still in that movie theater. Like we all were just like, what did we just watch? What was this? It was, and I'll never forget that, but I wouldn't have got that at home. Yeah. I would have been on my phone. I would have checked the mail. Exactly. My girlfriend and I went to see a movie last weekend, a little art house movie called Fremont. And it's about a woman uh, kind of dealing with her PTSD. She's uh, emigrated from Afghanistan where she was a translator. And so, you know, there was all of these complicated emotions and PTSD and, uh it was such a um outwardly undramatic movie but like all the drama was uh you could tell was was inside her and and it had just a really dark sense of humor as well it was really understated a really understated movie and i always appreciate movies where you're not hit over the head with something because I, I feel like when it's done well, we take it in more. You know, I think when something's heavy handed, there's part of our defense that goes up and it's like, oh, you're trying to manipulate, ma- manipulate me. You're trying to make me feel something. But when it's understated, I feel like it pulls us towards it. And we and it's like we want more of it. And when that movie was over, uh, yeah, everybody just watched the credits and was still and and there's always also that moment, too, where you know people want to clap, but they feel self-conscious about clapping for a movie. Yeah, the 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 power of the collective consciousness, I mean, even music like, you know, when I watch live music, it's typically music I would never listen to. I would never put on my Spotify playlist or YouTube it or, or any of that. For instance. Say it again. For, for instance. 
for instance, uh, usually like country music or even rock. Um, yeah, you know, I, I listen to classical. Uh, yeah, I do enjoy classical from time to time. But they're just, but there's so many different genres of music I couldn't even name them. But there's something about I, I don't. It's it's so rare that I've been to see live music, and even though it was a genre I typically would not have just thought to play or put on, I love it because it's live and it's visceral and there's an energy in the room and there's just something about doing things. You know that I, I, I've mentioned this before. I forget the the guy. Um, wild who the, the kid the young kid the teenage kid who or like college kid who went out and spent all his money um from his trust fund and then like lived in a van and died in alaska and oh yeah chris uh i know who you're thinking but of. but anyway you know he and he went on his two-year journey around chris the world. yeah and and, and yeah. around the world or around the country and then he, he he dies, and in his journal he said, uh, "Happiness is best spent with others," and that's something that's always resonated with me. Like I have a nice time by myself when I when I do things, but it's so much more fun to cook with others, to go for a walk with others, to you know have, have a podcast. I mean, you're also going to be annoyed. It's, I mean, I think that's the, the flip side, right? Where moments of boredom, there's going to be moments of, of boredom, drain, right. of drain, of annoyance, of frustration, but there's all, but you're going to have that with yourself also, but, but with yourself, you don't get the, 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 the high highs. It, it's you almost don't. like there's a limit of the, the range. It limits the range mm -hmm. of the emotional experience. Yeah, that's a great point. And I find that to be so true. And that's where I think the catastrophizing depression fueled part of our brain uh, really gets in our way is it creates this little movie of what it's going to uh, be like if we walk out that door and we go to that party where there's going to be a lot of people that we don't know. Um, like I, I look forward to going to get togethers with friends when it's everybody who i already know and i enjoy their company but if half of it is people i've never met i don't know there's this trepidation and this kind of dread and anxiety and i guess i guess you would call it social anxiety I, I i don't know but i'm leo i'm not a fan of the unknown <laughs> well you, you know so here's what's fascinating because we're talking about um you know, social anxiety and meeting people. And I read this book, Stray, by Stephanie Cheryl Chandler. Oh, oh, I'm uh, sorry. It, I'm thinking of uh, uh, the book by Cheryl Strayed. Sorry, I confused gotcha. that. Yeah. And she was talking about this guy that she was dating and how much bravado he had. He, you know, he had all the swagger and all these cool things that he did. And she was like, that's not what really attracted her to him. She, she was more attracted to his humanity. The fact that he stopped, he gave up drugs when his friend died from a drug overdose. And she was like, those were the parts of him that she was attracted to. And then I realized it's the same for me with people. You know, my girlfriend, all of my friends are my girlfriend's friends. So if we stop, me and her break up. I like it's just a, it's a it's a party of one again, right? And we've been going out 
to these parties with her friends and, you know, a lot of the same people would be there. And, I, and there was this one guy, I was like, this guy is all bravado. I didn't like this guy. All bravado. He's in the Air Force. He hikes. He kayaks. He, he's, he's killed people. Like, like, he's the guy's guy, right? He smokes cigars. He tells jokes that would get him canceled, you know. And then one day he, the last time I met, met him, he said that he didn't drink because I noticed he wasn't drinking. He said, yeah, I went through a divorce and my son and I started drinking and my wife was drinking and my son came up to me and said, you know, mom already drinks. Can you be the one who doesn't? And he said it was that moment that he stopped drinking. And seeing that piece of humanity in the the non-bravado side, I was like, I like this guy. This guy is cool. But I, I hadn't seen any of that up until that moment. And what I think, yeah. say it again. I was just going to say what a great illustration of what we look for yeah. in somebody that that we want in our life. But go ahead, I cut you off. But but I, but I think that, you know, when, you know, part of the social anxiety is when we go to these social events, most of us are all bravado. Right. We're all like the, you know, the, the, in the ancient and in the, in the uh, Eastern philosophy, they say there are three selves, the public, the private and then the secret. And, uh, you know, the, the we get so much of the public person, especially when we're first meeting them or meeting them for the first few times. Uh, it's not till we get to the private part of them or the secret part of them that oh, I go, OK, now we can connect. But on the flip side, if you if you meet somebody and they lead with the secret and the private, you're like, whoa, this is too much. We just met. So, <laughs> so there, there is that balance, yeah. right? <laughs> I was just going to say that, that, yeah, um, boundaries, moderation, uh, you know, when is the right time to say something? You know, one of the one of the things that I like to say is there's almost nothing that we can't say if we say it. At the right time to the right person with the right words and the right tone of voice. And uh, it took me decades to understand that. Um, and it, I would say, not has not only helped save my life um, because I allowed people to see the private me in support groups. Um, it, it allowed me to advocate for myself if my boundaries were being crossed, um, whether what somebody was doing was wildly inappropriate or um, acceptable to the average person, um, I didn't have the bandwidth to, you know, engage or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. But it, I think it's so important for, for those of us who had experiences as children where we felt trapped by circumstances, you know, nobody tells you at 18, you're no longer trapped. You understand intellectually that you're free now. But if you grew up being a people pleaser or a fixer, you, nobody tells you, you don't have to care. You know, you're around adults now. You don't have any kids. Uh, those other people are adults. You're not responsible for their happiness. Nobody tells you that. We have to fucking tap dance and be who we think people want us to be for so many years 
that, you know, until enough is enough. And usually it doesn't present itself as us going, well, that's the root of my discomfort or my life, you know, feeling unmanageable. We, we're not even aware of that. We just know that we feel dread. We feel overwhelmed. Uh, you know, we're, we're angry because people aren't doing what we think they should be doing. Um, I don't know how I got off on that. Tangent. Do you feel like, or maybe the question should be in what ways do you feel like you're tap dancing currently? Well, up until this weekend, I think it was hiding uh, the occasional suicidal ideation and the the dread around not being productive. And it really almost all of it, because I have a great life on paper. It's the dread of feeling like I don't have the energy um, to reach my professional potential and that I'll have to work for the rest of my life. Um, I I kind of, for the most part, would keep that to myself. Um, and so I think that that's a mask that I, I have to, um, and I, and I share it in my support groups, but, um, I, you know, if that dread is persistent, uh, I think we need to keep chipping, chipping away at it. And who knows, maybe it's all biochemical and maybe my, my meds need to be mixed up or, um, I know one of the things I should be doing more is, uh, exercising, but you know, Leo, you know what it's like when just the thought of, you know, checking email feels like you're running a mini marathon. Oh, my uh, chest feels so tight when yeah. I, I'm like, oh man, what, what, what does the world want from me now? You know? Yeah. Um, and, and how and- will I disappoint them? Well, you know, I I had this running thing theme in my head of part of the 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 pain of being in your forties and about the midlife crisis is that there's so much more expected of you with fewer resources. When I was in my twenties, I just I could do whatever, and and I didn't, and I also really didn't care. You know, I, I had ego, I had testosterone, um, you know, you're young and, and free and ambitious and uh, you're just like, all right, I could do whatever, whenever, however, I could, I could live out my car, I could live in a mansion, like the, the world is your oyster kind of thing. And then you get in your, your 40s and injuries start to pile up and there's debt and then you're like, all right, well, the history keep, of rejection, the history of rejection. But then you also start thinking about the future. Like if I keep going on this trajectory, like, like you, you kind of feel like you're running out of uh tarmac or, you know, yeah. space <laughs> room for error. Like when you were young, you like, I could, I, I could recover. And mm-hmm. now you're recognizing that window of recovery is smaller and smaller. And you're like, am I prepared for if I don't really recover? Like if I stop working, am I financially okay? Am I in a position if I get injured and I can't show up uh, where I can take care of myself. And I think it's, it's that, I think, you know, as you get older, it's the health, the thinking about the health issues and uh, the financial response. And then you're like, are my parents okay? If they're not okay, I got to take care of my parents. Um, and then, 
there's also like a higher social expectation. My friends, a lot of my friends are married. They have kids. Like, come see us. Come visit. Now, all of a sudden, you know, people like, come see us. You know, when we're all in our 20s and 30s, it's like, ah, right, you know, living a wild life. And now, um, so there's just, everything requires a lot more thought and mindfulness and effort and energy. And you, you, and if I haven't, if I hadn't been mindful in my twenties and thirties, I haven't really built that support network to guide me through this. But I think a lot of people don't even, aren't even aware that they, no. it's what they need. Right. Like they think they got to do it all themselves. In this yes. Life. And, and I think it, 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 we experience that often as restlessness or boredom. Um, you know, we don't, understand that the the thing that might be missing might be meaning or purpose or human connection or just like oh there's nothing good on netflix or you know whatever however it presents itself you know what's interesting about that is i've discovered when i have a a day full of meaning and purpose and i'm engaged i could watch anything on netflix it doesn't matter Put on a cartoon. I, I'm, I'm so when I'm when my life is full, then I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's almost like when you're hungry, I could eat whatever. When you're truly hungry, I could eat whatever. But if I'm craving, if I'm trying to fill a hole inside myself, then all of a sudden I'm picky. I need this. I need that. I'm more fragile. Uh, that doesn't quite do it. Now I'm scrolling for a half hour. All right, we can put that on. I'm not really happy about it. No, nothing satisfies, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. I, I I went to this external thing to satisfy me, but it it can't. It, it's supposed to be the thing that I I come to after. In most cases, sometimes it does hit the spot, but yeah. it's not. I, it shouldn't be the initial. And I feel that way about relationships as well, romantic relationships, that they can never be the cake. Uh, they can be the icing, but, you know, we got to give ourselves the cake. We got to cultivate that ourselves. Um, if we look for somebody to fill uh, those parts of us uh, that we should be filling ourselves, you know, self-care, validation, you know, and, and not to mean that, you know, we shouldn't feel validated by, but it, it by our partner but we need to be validating ourselves on our on our own as well and that's a tough thing i think if you've got depression or a mean part of your brain that's always telling you you don't do enough you don't have enough and you are not enough that's a that's a big challenge to face and the easiest thing in the world is to go well i'm going to find a partner who's going to take those things away from me and you know, you find yourself, I think a lot of people who deal with that find themselves in failed relationship after failed relationship because we get into this fantasy of who we want them to be and then we blame them for not being that that fantasy. Do you have a, a fantasy of who you want to be or need to be? Yeah, a more productive person professionally. That's the biggest fantasy that that I have. The, the is, other is 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 that out of um, 
feeling like you need more financially to yes. retire? Or is that, is that a feeling that you've always had of like, I haven't done enough? Um, much more the financial necessity than the attaboys and the kudos. Yeah, I do find myself sometimes feeling like I'm not enough, uh, you know, that I should be pushing harder with my comedy or, you know, marketing the the podcast, but most of it is for financial reasons so that, so that I can retire. Um, and, uh, it's, I have trouble accepting that I have a finite amount of energy, you know, maybe less than the average person to, to put into that. And as much as I wish I could summon it, there are days when I get up at noon and I'm back in bed at four and not because I'm tired, but because I just am overwhelmed with, uh, anxiety and, uh, it just all feels like too much, not in a suicidal way, just in a like logistical kind of way. And I often feel better after getting up after that that hour and I'm able to tackle some of the things. And, you know, my advice for anybody out there would be don't, don't, you know, um, look at somebody else's life that you admire as how your life should be. And then hate yourself for not being able to act exactly like they do. Find out what works for you, whether it's taking a nap in the afternoon meditating, you know, rewarding yourself with a video game for an hour, whatever you need to uh, keep your bandwidth uh, open. Find out what those things are. The, you know, one of the things that I know does not work for me because it's not um, recharging my battery, it's it's running, is uh, uh, pornography and, and video games. And you know, I go long stretches without, uh, you know, sometimes multiple years without doing that. But I, I think sometimes when I get to that place where I'm, I just want to feel something intense and that's just oblivion. Uh, sometimes I go to, to those and, and I don't like that. You know, I wish that weren't the case. Um, and I know that, you know, I'm not doing those things because I'm a weak person or I'm a bad person. I'm doing it because I, I that's the tool and it's a shitty tool. That's the tool that I want to choose on that given day to deal with my feelings of dread or depression or anxiety, whatever, whatever they may be. What have you learned in your support groups because i know you're in a support group for depression or for intimacy mm -hmm. and is the other one for depression or addiction addiction yeah uh yeah. in terms of feeling that intensity what have you learned in in the, in terms of uh, how to achieve that in a, a a way that's not maladaptive in a way that actually great question uh one of the things in the support group for intimacy uh, there's a, a phrase in the literature that says we mistake intensity for intimacy um and i think that's kind of what pornography is for a lot of people is 
and and addictive relationships, you know, where there's love bombing in the beginning of the of the relationship, you know, we we think, oh, this I my feelings around this person are very intense. This must be love. But very often we don't even truly know that person because we haven't been around them long enough. We haven't had the moments of disappointment or disagreement, and we haven't taken the time to work through that. We just think, oh, I no longer feel intense about this person. I'm going to move on to the next one. Um, And I think pornography can be a way where people can feel um, something that is intense that, yeah, it involves other people, but they're on a screen and we don't have to worry about their needs. Um, They can be a fantasy uh, you know, of what we have in our head of what is exciting, but it's, we're still not dealing with, um, and it's not that I think pornography, you know, all pornography is bad. I think it's the way, I think it depends on what the pornography is, you know, whether or not it's um, exploitive or, you know, whatever. Um, It's, why are we using it? And I think that's a really, really important question to ask ourselves, even if we don't have the answer is why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I lonely? Am I angry? Um, Those are the questions uh, to ask. And it's pretty clear in my mind what the ones are where the, the, there, there's a difference between losing myself in something that's healthy and losing myself in something to avoid something. Um, for instance, I can lose myself in woodworking and be in the shop for six hours. And that to me is not running from my life um, because I never find myself doing that uh in an irresponsible way where, you know, I didn't call somebody back that I was supposed to call. It, it, I, I'm not left with a feeling of guilt or shame. I'm I'm left with a feeling of accomplishment and growth. Whereas if it's, you know, pornography or, or a video game, I'm left with a feeling of, well, that was a wasted six hours and I'm left not feeling good about myself. Um, it's, it's for me, it's almost like the, the line at the DMV. It's like, Oh, this line's too long. I'm going to get out and go get a sandwich. And, you know, after I spend six hours playing a video game, I'm just now back at the end of the line to the DMV and my life is still there. And I have not solved anything by, by getting out of the line. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful analogy right there. I, um, you know, is there any part of your, we could definitely talk for, for decades, for hours. Is there any part of your journey that we haven't unraveled that you think would be valuable to the listeners? I don't think so. I think we've, we've certainly touched on everything that I'm kind of dealing with right now. Um, yeah, there have been things in the past, but, you know, I've talked about about those uh, a lot. I probably touched on them on them in my previous uh interview on your on your yeah. show but no i i feel like that is that is about 100 percent of what is going on with me right now what the battles in my brains are re, in my brain is real or imagined 
how are you going to take care of yourself, nourish yourself right after this episode? That's a good question. Probably eat. I don't know if you heard my stomach grumbling, but I haven't eaten anything today. Uh, then uh, I need to take my dog for a walk, but uh, that's that's not a, a nourishing thing. I don't know, Leo. I don't know. You, you've given me something to... I did uh, pray and meditate this morning, and that's an important part of of taking care of myself, even though it's not something that I'm like, yay, I love doing this. I know it helps me slow my mind down and kind of ground myself for, for starting my day. Um, I wish I was playing hockey tonight. I have to wait till tomorrow night to, to play hockey, but, um, that's a good question. Fuck you for making me. (laughs) Uh, penultimate (laughs) question. Always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them, Paul? I'd ask them, what would you say to your best friend? who is thinking of killing themselves. Um, You know, we're uniquely positioned to be our own best friend. And very often we talk to ourselves and look at our lives in a way that, um, you know, somebody else were talking to us that way or telling us to look at our life in that way. You know, we get a restraining order against them, but for some reason we allow ourselves to talk to ourselves and to look at our lives in a way that's really cruel. And I think we mistake it for discipline and it's not, I think we need the exact opposite in that moment. I think we need compassion. I think we need to be able to accept that we're feeling what we're feeling without assigning, you know, my life is good. My life is bad. Um, it's not to say that we should ignore any real actual problems that we have in our life, but um, that thinking that we can predict how life is going to unfold, be it our lives, our life or somebody else's is, it's pretty ridiculous to do it. You know, would you have predicted that you would be doing a podcast about uh, suicidal thoughts not at all. Not I would all. never have predicted right. that I would be making a podcast about mental health. You know, I predicted that I was going to be in movies and doing this and, you know, still being a stand-up comic and, you know, what I wanted out of life changed. Um, not that people were asking me to be in movies. I would still act in a movie if, you know, depending on the movie and if somebody asked me, but you know, all, all of that is to say, you know, put the crystal ball away and just take it one moment at a time and be your own best friend. I love that. And then last question, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Um, bowl of granola at four in the morning because I can't sleep. All right. Love. I, I love hate, it. I hate that I have to eat that to fall asleep, but I just, it's so satisfying. It yeah. really is. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling the 988 or any of the 800 numbers that are listed in the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one on one coaching with yours truly. 
Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks, Leo.